1: The spill and the drill, the political fallout of the Gulf of Mexico's oil rig disaster.
2: We did a search through the transcripts of all the people who had been saying drill, baby, drill for the past two years. We can't find that any of them have commented on the, on the spill yet. There's been a roaring silence.
1: The massive oil spill sours the taste for light, sweet crude and could shift the debate on offshore drilling. Meanwhile, another coast welcomes the country's first
3: offshore wind farm. This is about jobs. This is real jobs, clean energy for America. There's tin knockers, there's iron workers, there's, 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 there's carpenters, there's pile drivers. I mean, we're all in this. A tale of two coastlines and the choices for
1: offshore energy. Those stories and poetry inspired by nature. This week on Living on Earth,
4: stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm.
1: From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. Offshore energy splashed into the headlines this past week with a wind power announcement for Nantucket Sound and a disastrous oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. We'll be taking a very close look at efforts underway, uh, particularly to minimize the environmental risks in the area affected by the leaking oil.
5: Cape Wind will be the United States' first offshore wind farm, supplying clean power to homes and businesses in Massachusetts while creating good jobs here in America.
1: That's Interior Secretary Ken Salazar approving the Cape Wind Project after nine years of controversy. We'll have analysis of what that might mean for the country's nascent offshore wind industry. But first, more on the spill in the Gulf and the fallout for offshore drilling. Just weeks ago, President Obama announced his plan to open more of the country's coasts to drilling. Here's how the president explained that decision in early April.
2: It turns out, by the way, that oil rigs today generally don't cause spills. They are technologically
3: very advanced.
1: Now with 11 workers dead and a desperate scramble to prevent an ecological catastrophe, many politicians are rethinking their position. Florida's Gulf Coast is the front line in this debate. If drilling expands, it would likely happen first in the eastern Gulf. That's where Craig Pittman covers the environment for the St. Petersburg Times. Pittman says public opinion in Florida is, like the spill, a
2: fluid situation. There has definitely been an evolution in the public attitude. In the late 80s, early 90s, I I covered public hearings on offshore drilling where it would draw hundreds of people from all walks of life. You'd see skate punks with mohawks standing next to button down guys from the Chamber of Commerce. Republicans and Democrats joining forces, everybody saying, we don't want drilling off our shores here in in Florida. That was the third rail of Florida politics. But then came the summer of $4 gasoline, and people started reconsidering that position and saying, well, gee, if the tourists can't afford to drive down here in the first place, what's the point of having these clean beaches? You know, maybe it's worth the risk. So how do you think this is
1: going to affect uh, public opinion in Florida?
2: It's as if the third rail of Florida politics has suddenly become a live wire again. It seems to have pushed a lot of people who were saying, you know, I'm open to the idea of drilling, to say, okay, now we've seen what it looks like. Maybe it's not such a good idea. The most immediate effect was that uh, Governor Charlie Crist, who uh, uh, is running for the U.S. Senate, announced that he is rethinking his support for offshore drilling.
6: Well, you know, if this doesn't give somebody pause, there's something wrong, I think. Um, this is, a, as I understand it, a pretty new rig. And as I've always said, it would need to be far enough, clean enough, and safe enough. Uh, I'm not sure that this was far enough. I'm pretty sure it wasn't clean enough, and it doesn't sound like it was uh, safe enough.
2: He uh, had said uh, during the 2008 presidential race when he was being considered for vice president by John McCain that he was open to the idea of offshore drilling. That was his his mantra. He said, you know, I'll support it if it's clean enough, safe enough, and far enough away to protect the beaches. Obviously, now we have a spill very far away from Florida that is drifting closer and closer to our shores. And he's saying, you know, maybe there's not a place that's far enough away. So, you know, he seems to be staking out his own course in order to separate himself from some of the more conservative elements of the Republican Party.
1: So your uh, current senators, uh, Senators Lemieux and Nelson, where do they stand on this? And where's the rest of the congressional delegation, you think?
2: Senator Lemieux said that he would like to find out what sort of safety requirements should be changed in order to make sure this doesn't happen again. Senator Nelson, who is a longtime opponent of offshore drilling in the eastern Gulf of Mexico, has seized on this issue, as you might expect he would, and said, "You know, we need a full investigation. We think the oil companies have not been telling the truth about their safety record, and we think this is a, a further reason for trying to persuade President Obama to back off of his plan to open up more of the Eastern Gulf to drilling. And in fact, two of our congressmen joined forces, a Republican and a Democrat to send the President a letter saying, "Back off your plan." We don't want it close to Florida. We don't like what we're seeing out there.
1: So if part of the deal for trying to get a comprehensive energy and climate bill through Congress is to include offshore drilling... Is that now vulnerable, you think, because it sounds to me like um, Senator Nelson of Florida has a little more ammo to to push back against?
2: Absolutely. And he's not alone. Two senators from New Jersey have also weighed in and said, uh, you know, look what happened. This is terrible. And uh, we don't want it off our shore. And they are joining Senator Nelson and calling for congressional hearings and an investigation.
1: So where do you see this heading? Is this yet another uh, temporary turn in public opinion for Florida and for the nation? Or do you think this might have a more lasting impact, this, uh, this accident we were watching unfolding in the Gulf?
2: I think it depends on how big it gets and how bad it gets. Um, I mean, people still talk about the Santa Barbara spill mm-hmm. uh, from California. People in the Gulf still talk about the uh, the big Ixtox spill off of, uh, off of Mexico that went on for two months and coated the beaches of Texas with tar balls for years afterwards. The big ones, people remember, and it affects political patterns for a long time to come. If, on the other hand, it winds up being easy to clean up, well, then uh, it'll be forgotten by the next election cycle, probably.
1: Do you think this spill in the Gulf is going to be the – is this the end of drill, baby, drill? Is it just now going to ring to people's ears as
2: spill, baby, spill? That's a really good question. Let me answer it by saying this. We did a search through the transcripts of all the people who had been saying drill, baby, drill for the past two years. Uh, Newt Gingrich, Sean Hannity, Rush Limbaugh, Glenn Beck, all those folks, Sarah Palin. We can't find that any of them have commented on the, on the spill yet. There's been a roaring silence.
1: Craig Pittman is a staff writer for the St. Petersburg Times. Thanks very much. You're welcome. And while the Gulf is dealing with oil, the New England coast is banking on the wind. Despite some strong objections, Interior Secretary Ken Salazar approved the permit for the offshore facility called Cape Wind.
5: I'm approving the Cape Wind project with modifications that will help protect the historic cultural and environmental resources of Nantucket Sound. This will be the first of many projects up and down the Atlantic coast as we build a new energy future for our country.
1: Salazar says Cape Wind's 130 turbines could generate 468 megawatts of carbon-free power, about as much as an average coal-fired power plant. It could also generate 1,000 jobs. That excites Marty Akins of the local
3: Electrical Workers Union. This is about jobs. This is real jobs, clean energy for America. There's, there's tin knockers, there's, there's iron workers, there's carpenters, there's pile drivers. I mean, we're all in this. We turn to Denise Bodie, CEO of the American
1: Wind Energy Association, to find out what the Cape Wind decision means.
4: It is the first major step forward to really creating a brand new um, source of electric generation that is even uh, very high capacity generation because offshore wind is very reliable. And if we get policies in place, the long-term commitment of a renewable electric standard and comprehensive energy policy and and climate policy in place in the U.S., that will send the signal that that industry is ready to be built out here in the United States. States.
1: Give us a a status report on the various offshore proposals. I hear a lot from different states, Delaware, New Jersey, Rhode Island. How many projects are in the works and how close are they to getting in the water?
4: There's a project in Delaware and three projects in New Jersey, two projects in Rhode Island and uh, one in Texas, one in North Carolina, and then one in the Great Lakes uh, from Ohio. So there are all up and down the coast uh, in the Gulf and in the Great Lakes. They're taking a look at at doing that. And in addition, there are others in the development pipeline, including projects off the Virginia coast and near New York uh, in Lake Erie as well. Many of them actually already have signed purchase power agreements with utilities and are being actively encouraged by the governor and the economic development in in their home states.
1: Well, so clearly there's a lot of excitement about the potential here. But, you know, Cape Wind's not a done deal yet, as the opponents are, are quick to point out. Here's uh, Audra Parker. She's president of the Alliance to Protect Nantucket Sound.
7: I think this is so far from over. State and local permits are being challenged in the state court. There is no sort of power contract for Cape Wind. And we have an extremely strong legal case in the federal court. So I believe we will win.
1: So what happens, Denise Bodie, if uh, Cape Wind ends up mired in court battles? What kind of signal does that send to these other offshore wind uh, projects?
4: I think the main signal that we have is Secretary Salazar declaring that he thinks this offshore wind project should go forward. So if not this project, clearly the next one, you know, that's in the pipeline uh, will know that they will receive long-term commitment from at least this administration to move forward on those.
1: Another thing the opponents of Cape Wind point out, and I think this also applies to the other projects potentially, and that is there's no contract yet to sell the electricity produced into the, the grid. How big an obstacle is that? Can offshore wind be cost competitive?
4: When you consider, over time, um, having higher capacity um, electric generation coming from these offshore projects, I mean, the end product is going to be very affordable over a 20- or 30-year period. So, you know, your upfront cost is going to be a little more expensive. But once you get the industry built out, it's going to be one that's going to be very, very cost-competitive.
1: But we're in such a tangle in Congress trying to Mm -hmm. get a climate bill passed. If that is, pardon the pun, but up in the air, isn't uh, offshore wind power up in the air, too?
4: The real ability to move on the ball forward on all these installations and manufacturing starts really is the renewable electric standard. But having that as part of a broader package that puts a price on carbon really cinches the deal.
1: The timing of these two events, the Cape Wind decision coming just as we're watching this oil spill unfold in the Gulf. Mm -hmm. uh, What does this tell us about where we're headed with energy from our shores and and the choices we have along our coasts?
4: Well, I, I bet those folks in Louisiana wish they had a wind farm down there as opposed to having those oil rigs. I mean, the thing to take from this is that... You have to make choices when you look at what your source of energy is going to be. And we think we offer absolutely the best, most sustainable, supportable um, source of electricity out there. I think the turbines are magnificent. They're a symbol of our dedication and our commitment to our kids' future and to having clean air and having a clean environment and, and to having jobs for them.
1: Denise Bode, CEO of the American Wind Energy Association, thank you very much.
4: Wonderful to be with you.
1: There's much more about Cape Wind on our website and updates on the oil spill. Check out LOE.org. Coming up, seeds as a cause for celebration and litigation. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. It's called coccidioidomycosis, or, to the layman, valley fever. It's caused by an airborne fungus in some dry parts of the American West. Most often, valley fever causes flu-like symptoms, but for some, it wreaks havoc throughout the body. It hits hardest among African and Hispanic Americans— Doctors think the reasons are both genetic and socioeconomic. Mwenda Hasey has the story.
8: Valley fever isn't well known, even within California and Arizona where it's found. Yet it's the most common and fastest growing infectious disease in Central California. And valley fever has made thousands of people really sick. People like Johnita Hodge. Back in 2006, her doctor told her.
9: Dr. Meese said, 'Ah, there's no medical reason you're here. You better go to your prayer closet and thank
8: someone. <laughs> <laughs> we met in Northeast Bakersfield where she lives. It's your typical California suburban neighborhood with wide streets and identical homes. Nearby construction churns up the dirt, and with dirt, coxie spores. Johnita is a lifelong athlete. She's coached basketball and volleyball for nearly twenty-three years. But her former six-foot self shrank when she lost an entire vertebra to the fungus. Her hair's become so brittle it just breaks off. Now she wears a wig. The infection left her with scaly skin and painful bumps and scars all over her legs. The pain was
9: was I you know I had two kids complete natural birth and I tell you it was worse.
8: <laughs> Janita's doctor, Amin Navin Chandara, is an infectious disease specialist in Bakersfield, California. He says even though black and brown people make up 40% of Bakersfield's population, They account for 80% of serious valley fever cases that he sees. Only recently have researchers suggested that there may be a genetic reason why people of color suffer more from valley fever.
10: It is usually uh, biological because we think that this group of people probably have a gene in them which doesn't allow them to fight the fungus.
8: Scientists haven't pinpointed the biological reason minority populations get it worse.
10: But it can be environmental as well.
8: The environmental and social factors are more obvious once you understand how people usually catch valley fever.
10: When the soil is been disturbed, this particular fungus uh, turns into a spore or a bubble.
8: These spore packs dislodge when people dig into the dirt.
10: And this bubble comes into the air...
8: And with a puff of air, the bubble pops open, releasing the spores.
10: And all an individual need to do is inhale about 10 to 15 spores.
8: A dozen spores can make you sick. Factor in a scary dust storm and we're talking 10 times the load needed. Many brown-skinned people work in construction and agriculture. They're the ones more likely to be around freshly stirred up spores. The infection starts off small, with a cough. Then gets worse the longer valley fever goes untreated, or as with Johnita, the longer it goes misdiagnosed. From
9: 2003 to 2006, there was now one single valley fever test. I have been tested for AIDS three times. I have been tested for every disease you can think of, including sickle cell, a couple
8: times. But full blood work does not include valley fever. It took a friend's vision to push Johnita to ask for a valley fever test.
9: Um, a friend of mine actually called me. She says, how you been feeling? Have you been sick? And I said, well, you know, as a matter of fact, I have been. And she
8: said, I don't want to scare you or anything, but the Lord told me you have valley fever. Valley fever is easily treatable, especially if the infection hasn't spread past the lungs. Amphotericin is one of the go-to antibiotics used to treat the infection. When you get a,
9: a weed in your yard, if you get a little piece of it, if you don't kill it right away, it will just take over your entire yard. But then you got to come with Roundup, and that's what the amphotericin is. It's basically Roundup. And he goes, and what happens when you have a weed when it grows back? It comes back stronger.
8: Janita has to take antibiotics for the rest of her life. Her body was so ravaged by the valley fever that it'll return if she doesn't. This scenario is playing out more and more often. Again, here's Dr. Amin.
10: I came here in 1979. At that time, we were seeing on an average about 200 cases a year. And now it has virtually run to 2,000 cases a year.
8: The effects of climate change may make the valley and the southwestern soil drier and more hospitable to the fungus. To those in the area, Dr. Amin has this advice.
10: When we ever have a dust storm, stay away. Don't go out, particularly people who are in the high-risk group.
8: Currently, there is little funding for a vaccine. And not that many people are talking about prevention and treatment of Valley Fever. But doctors say without addressing these issues, there will only be more cases like Johnita's. For Planet Harmony and Living on Earth in Bakersfield, California, this is Wenda Mwenda Hasey <laughs>
1: Winda is a reporter for our brand new online offering, Planet Harmony, which welcomes all and is designed to have special appeal for young African-Americans. Check it out and join the discussion at MyPlanetHarmony.com. That's MyPlanetHarmony.com. The U.S. Supreme Court has just heard its first case involving genetically engineered crops. The Monsanto Corporation is appealing a lower court decision that halts sales of genetically engineered alfalfa seed. So-called Roundup-ready alfalfa is engineered to survive when the herbicide Roundup is applied to the fields. Living on Earth's Jessica Elise Smith reports that this case could set a precedent for the future of biotech agriculture.
7: Four years ago, the Center for Food Safety sued the U.S. Department of Agriculture, claiming that Roundup Ready alfalfa was approved without adequate environmental review. The center represents a coalition of seed farms, nonprofits, and environmental groups that contend the use of genetically engineered alfalfa poses ecological harm. Law professor Susan Schneider says the coalition wants the government to apply the National Environmental Policy Act, known as NEPA, before approving Roundup Ready alfalfa for use.
11: NEPA requires that whenever a federal agency undertakes a federal action that can significantly affect the quality of the environment, the agency is supposed to consider and document the potential environmental effects of their action.
7: Schneider is the director of the Agriculture and Food Law Program at the University of Arkansas School of Law. She's watching this case closely.
11: I think that the notion that an environmental impact statement should be prepared prior to deregulating a genetically engineered crop is something that's, I think, coming of its own now.
7: The lower court agreed with the center that an environmental impact statement was warranted, a first for a genetically engineered crop. The court ordered an injunction to restrict sales of Roundup Ready alfalfa until an environmental review was complete. Monsanto appealed and the case has climbed the legal ladder to the U.S. Supreme Court. Garrett Casper of Monsanto says the case is about more than just alfalfa.
5: But it boils down to three things. Farmers, fairness, and the freedom to choose.
7: Casper says Monsanto wants farmers to have the autonomy to plant GE alfalfa along with the pesticide Roundup so they can grow the crop weed-free.
5: Our hope is that you know, farmers will be able to count on USDA approvals of biotech crops They'll also be able to know that challenges to biotech must be based on scientific evidence and then, at the end of the day, have the choice to use these products.
7: Choice is the key word here. While Monsanto says farmers should have the choice to use genetically engineered alfalfa, the Center for Food Safety's staff attorney, George Kimbrell, sees it another way. Kimbrell says the threat of spreading GE alfalfa demonstrates a loss of choice.
5: If you're a farmer and you want to grow an organic you know, alfalfa crop or a conventional alfalfa crop, and you can't because of contamination uh, or the threat of contamination, there is no amount of money that will remedy that harm. Uh, and to the extent that you're a consumer and you want to have the choice to buy non genetically engineered food, that is also an irreparable harm. That is, there's no amount of money that can give you back your choice.
7: Alfalfa is used as a feed for cattle and dairy cows. Organic dairy farmers rely on their feed to be GE-free, so they worry Roundup Ready Alfalfa will threaten their ability to produce an organic product. To address this issue, the USDA has set rules for how far apart farmers can plant GE seeds from other farms. Monsanto says these buffer zones are in their contracts, which farmers sign when they buy seeds. But some environmental groups point out that since alfalfa is a perennial crop, it will stick around for many consecutive years and alfalfa is openly pollinated by bees. Kimbrell from the Center for Food Safety says nature can't always be regulated.
5: Bees are wild. They don't read signs. So even if you have an isolation distance of, say, 900 feet or 1,400 feet, which is some of the ones they proposed, for example, if you've got a wild honeybee that can fly five miles, that's not going to do you much good.
7: The Supreme Court will decide if there is enough harm to continue to halt the sale of Roundup Ready alfalfa. In past cases, it all came down to definitions—possibility of harm versus likely harm. Law professor Susan Schneider says in Monsanto's case, these definitions are also under scrutiny.
11: Is it based simply on a percentage of how likely the harm is going to be? Or, in fact, shouldn't we really be looking at the specific harm that's involved and how serious a danger that presents? And that's where you get into some of the real technical legal issues that are before the court.
7: To Garrett Casper of Monsanto, the approval of Roundup Ready Alfalfa does not present permanent harm.
11: To call it
5: irreparable harm is certainly a stretch. If anything, it might be financial, which is repairable through other means.
7: The Center for Food Safety's George Kimbrell disagrees. He says there are environmental impacts linked to growing GE alfalfa, like contaminating wild alfalfa plants or damaging the organic market.
5: In the legal sense, economic injury is not by itself irreparable. But here, when it's intertwined with a permanent modification of nature, it is. To the extent that, you know, you've got this environmental harm that is coupled with a very significant economic harm to farmers and exporters.
7: Legal experts say this case will set an important precedent for the future regulation of genetically engineered plants and how environmental harms will be handled in the future. The Supreme Court case should be decided within the next few months. For Living on Earth, I'm Jessica Elise Smith.
1: richly diverse culture of Cuba comes through in its music, and the island's rich and diverse plant life comes through in its food. Agricultural scientist and musician Humberto Rios is tapping into both. His work to support organic farming and crop diversity recently won the prestigious Goldman Prize, sometimes called the Green Nobel. Like all Cubans, Rios was profoundly challenged by the collapse of the Soviet Union. All Cuban agriculture was based on the Soviet system of monoculture crops and pesticides. With the Soviets gone, Rios needed new ways to farm.
12: So I realized that we had to refocus all the plant breeding system in my country. Rios turned to Cuba's farmers. He
1: found far more varieties of plants in their small plots than researchers were aware of. Rios realized that Cuba's plant diversity could be its strength.
12: So I started to work with farming on that time, and I realized that they had a lot of knowledge to teach me.
1: I guess it's like having a broader toolbox. When you have more variety of seeds, uh, then you have more options for, what, different soil types, you can cultivate different weather, you can adjust to that sort of thing.
12: Yeah, yeah, it's true. Is to respect the environment instead of to transform the environment to grow the seed. Uh-huh. It's, 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 it's the way. It's the only way around to see agriculture. But most of the time, the conventional scientists have been transforming the environment to homogenize the environment, in order to grow the same variety all over the places. Uh-huh. So this method is promoting to to look for the, the real diversity that can grow in a specific environment.
1: You know, we have a saying in English, I don't know if there's a Spanish equivalent, but it goes, um, if the only tool you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. But what you're yeah. saying is if you have different different seeds, you, you don't have to be as forceful on, on the environment, on the land.
12: Of course, you have a lot of tools to know only hammer.
1: So what happened when you took what you were learning from farmers back to the university in Havana? Uh, was there resistance there,
12: you know the scientists are a little bit uh how can I say conservative so they classify me like a big crazy guy <laughs> so so I had to overcome that, but I think the evidence was the main tool to overcome these obstacles
1: hmm. so so what was it that persuaded those who were who were skeptical was it because your method proved to be more productive
12: yeah. It's more productive, it's in favor of diversity, um, it's more culturally appropriated. So culture is, for me, is a big issue.
1: When Rios says culture, he's speaking as a musician. He sows agricultural themes into his music. Music is at the heart of Cuban identity. And Rios says it's been an effective way to help him communicate.
12: For example, I have a popular song in Cuba. It's called Mango Chupé. It's a type of mango. This song is promoting the diversity of, of mango that we have in Cuba. But mango at the same time means pretty pretty lady or pretty, pretty guy, you know? So it's a double meaning. And the people enjoy it too much. And you you <laughs> you, 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 you you provide the subliminal message all the time. Even the policy maker dance and laugh a <laughs> lot.
1: For Rios, culture and agriculture are flip sides of the same coin, and diversity in one feeds the other.
12: So diversity crops have to do with diversity of opinions, of diversity of selection criteria. So through thousands and thousand years, People in the world have been able to choose the seed that they want to grow according to their culture. So you cannot separate agri with culture. That's an interesting point. I mean, you can't spell agriculture without culture. Sure, that is why it's very important to sing because it's the component of the, uh, of the culture into the agri. And farmers all the time have been singing. It's, it's a package that you cannot split. So that is why the people, all the farmers, love this kind of job that we are doing together. It's a real cultural exchange. Rios says he hopes this
1: kind of agriculture will continue to flourish on the island, even as politics and economy change. He hopes the United States, just 90 miles away, will one day be an export market for organic Cuban produce. In the meantime, there is
12: song to spread the word. To bring some love to bring some smile to, to the farm and in the way that the people can be more optimist and more independent.
1: Umberto Rios, uh, thank you very much. It's a great pleasure talking with you. Okay, thank you. up revisiting the american landscape of 40 years ago through the lens of documerica that's just ahead on living on earth support for
4: the environmental health desk at living on earth comes from the cedar tree foundation support also comes from the richard and rhoda goldman fund for coverage of
0: population and the environment and from gilman ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change This is Living on Earth on PRI,
1: Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. April, wrote the poet, is the cruelest month, but it is also National Poetry Month. We ask poets to share work inspired by the natural world.
0: Yes, we know April's over, but we still have more of these wonderful poems. I'm Janice Harrington, and my interest in poetry began with passionate teachers, passion is viral, it's contagious. Um, They loved poetry. I was exposed to, you know, some of the best. And I just grew up with it and and kept that interest. And poetry is also about paying attention to the world around you, seeing, using all your senses. And I think that very much appeals to me. I grew up in Lincoln, Nebraska. And the Nebraska landscape is beautiful. These long, low rolling hills. And this poem is set in that space, that that vastness of Nebraska when you're feeling really small and insignificant. And it's also thinking about what becomes of us, either as artists or as human beings or our relationships even. Shaking the Grass. Evening, and all my ghosts come back to me like red banty hens to catalpa limbs and chicken-wired hutches plucking, clucking, and falling at last into their head under wing sleep. I think about the field of grass I lay in once between Omaha and Lincoln. It was summer, I think. The air smelled green, and wands of windy green a sway, a sway swayed over me. I lay on green sod like a prairie snake letting the sun warm me. What does a girl think about alone in a field of grass, beneath the sky as bright as an Easter dress, beneath the green wind? Maybe I have not shaken the grass. All is vanity. Maybe I never rose from that green field. All is vanity. Maybe I did no more than swallow deep, deep breaths and spill them out into story. All is vanity. Maybe I listened to the wind sighing and shivered, spinning a whirl amidst the blue stem and green lashes. Oh, my beloved, oh, my beloved. I lay in a field of grass once, And then went on, even the hollow my body made is gone. Janice Harrington teaches
1: creative writing at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Shaking the Grass comes from her book, Even the Hollow My Body Made is Gone. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency turns 40 this year, and one of EPA's earliest and most creative projects was called Documerica. Hundreds of photographers set out to document the nation's environment. They produced a striking portrait of America in the midst of an environmental awakening in the early 70s. Now, if you're near a computer, you might want to go to our website, LOE.org, and look at some of these photos as we hear about them from Bruce Bustard. Mr. Bustard is a senior curator at the National Archives, and he's a fan of Documerica.
6: I think it really was the brainchild of of one man. His name was Gifford Hampshire, and Gifford Hampshire had been exposed to the Farm Security Administration photographs of the 1930s and early 1940s. And he fell in love with these photographs, and he got it in his head that he wanted to someday do a documentary photography project. And when he became part of the brand new Environmental Protection Agency, he decided to push the idea again. And he discussed it with the EPA administrator, William Ruckelshaus. And Ruckelshaus thought it was a great idea and told him to uh, go ahead and, and set up the project. And he ended up running the project.
1: And what, uh, what were the goals here? What were they trying to do with this project?
6: well the the mission statement said that it was going to take photographs of environmental concern and that sounds a bit dry like there would be a lot of photographs of smog and a lot of photographs of dead fish and uh, sewage going into rivers and things like that and certainly there are many many photographs like that but Gifford Hampshire had a rather broad idea of the environment. He followed the environmentalist Barry Commoner's first law of ecology, which was that everything was connected to everything else. And if you take that as your sort of credo, then... You not only have photographs of smog and uh, air and water pollution, but you also have a photography project that took photographs of a Hispanic ward in El Paso and of Native American reservations. It could be a photograph of great scenic beauty. So it's a very broad range of topics.
1: He really did tap into some amazing talent here, and there are amazing images. Do you have a particular favorite you want to talk about?
6: Well, one photograph that I'm particularly fond of is a photograph that was taken during the first fuel crisis that the nation went through in the early 1970s. The photographer is a man by the name of David Falconer, and he took this wonderful photograph of a gas station that had been abandoned because of the fuel crisis and a religious organization took over the gas station and they painted a gigantic jesus saves sign on the actual gas station and then they also painted the fuel pumps in bright red and purple and the photograph shows in the foreground the gas pumps the one is painted and it says fill up with the holy ghost and fire and then the other pump has an image of Jesus on it, and it says, fill up with old-time salvation. And so this is one of my favorites just because it's such a, an imaginative composition, I think. And it shows, again, where a really creative photographer could go with an assignment to photograph the fuel crisis.
1: There's another one in here I'm very fond of, and it uh, is some guys waiting for a black lung screening program.
6: Yes, this is a photograph that was taken by a photographer by the name of Jack Korn. And his assignment was to look at life in the coal mining regions of uh, West Virginia and Tennessee and the effect of a poor environmental condition on the people who live there. And so this photograph shows a group of five miners, and they're sitting in a hospital waiting room, and they're all about somewhere in their middle age or perhaps a little bit older. And they are bare chested, but they have their uh, their shirts are draped over them and uh, they're just waiting. And and at least in my mind, they look a bit anxious to find out whether they had any kind of problem with black lung.
1: You know, EPA, this is probably an unfair statement to a degree, but they seem to us today such a uh, faceless uh, bureaucracy And yet, here is the human element of their work coming through, through these photographs. And that's really striking to me, that um, that, to someone in the early days of this agency anyway, is, is what they thought their mission should be about.
6: I think it reflects some of the early energy in the EPA when it was first created, and also reflects some of the idealism of the the early environmental movement. Gifford Hampshire knew that he was kind of riding a tide of interest in the environment, and uh, he kind of seized the moment, and the result were these wonderful photographs.
1: He also had the foresight to realize that a lot of the environmental issues were about cities and how people lived in the urban environment, and uh, there's an interesting photograph here of a... um looks like a, a plane flying very low over over some some row houses. Tell me about that one.
6: This is a photograph taken by Michael Philip Mannheim. And as you said, there's a plane that is flying low over uh, the area that is around Logan Airport. Neptune Road is uh, where most of the photographs were taken. It's taken at a very low angle, which sort of accentuates uh, the the nearness of the plane to the houses. There's also an interesting sign in the foreground of the photograph that says, drive slow children, which lends a certain amount of irony and context to the photograph. (laughs) But Mannheim was trying to document something that's kind of difficult, I think, in a photograph. He was trying to document uh, noise pollution
1: National Archives senior curator Bruce Buster telling us about Documerica. Planes still roar over Neptune Road today. We went there with Documerica alumnus Michael Mannheim. He photographed the Boston neighborhood in 1973. But it's changed so much, Mr. Mannheim had trouble even finding it.
13: None of this is familiar.
1: Hmm. Do we have to walk should, across the tracks here? It should be there, I think. Okay.
13: The remains of Neptune Road. Really? Right. Let me go take a look it.
1: Wow. The last time Mr. Mannheim was here, Neptune Road was lined with houses. Now, airport parking lots and a runway have replaced the bustling community his lens captured in the 70s. Yep, here we are. This this is where you used to be taking pictures of houses?
13: You bet. There's nothing here. And this was a street of the iconic triple-deckers. It was where people from Boston came in the summertime to get the breezes... I don't know where the beach is now, but there's a beach just nearby, Constitution Beach, that I photographed. And this was the, just a nice place to take a break from the city. It was one of those beauty spots.
1: It must have been tough for people who were well-established in the neighborhood to see it going through those changes around the time that you were one working my, here. One
13: of my photographs is of a man holding up pictures of his kids playing in the park that became an airport runway one of the old timers and of course they knew what it was like and there was was no stopping this so yeah you can you can hear how terrible it would be to live here and uh, essentially they were driven
1: out It's, it's not just the airplanes it's the train, it's the traffic it's it's just an oppressive uh, audio environment.
13: So it's, it's a wonderful place for people not to live, but it <laughs> used to be bucolic.
1: You know, um, they could have documented this other ways, and um, today we're accustomed to, you know, an environmental measurement is in the form of some charts and graphs and whatnot. Why photography? What made photography seem like a good tool for the EPA to document uh, our environment?
13: I don't know. There still is the power of, that, of the photograph. If you can catch the epitomizing moment, you've really spelled it out for people. You have something they can study and they can think about. It's not just flicking by. Focus on that
1: image. If it arrests you, it it has, it has an emotional impact. Also, it strikes me that um, there are people in those photographs, and if you get a chart or a graph, there's no people there. It's a reminder that in the end, these environmental trends, they're, they're about people, they're about
13: us. So in the photographs, you find the humanity, it's true.
1: One of Gifford Hampshire's goals for Documerica was to record change over time. But the EPA cut the project's funding after just a couple of years. So we asked Michael Mannheim to follow up on his assignment from the 70s and document Neptune Road as it is today.
13: Let's do it. I don't know where. Mm -hmm.
1: I used to have subject matter. (laughs) Now we have vacant lots. Yeah. We stood among the broken bottles and cracked concrete on a footbridge over the commuter rail a remnant from the days when there were still homes to get to across the tracks on Neptune Road. Mannheim snaps shots of security walls and airport delivery trucks splashing through puddles.
13: And this is how we start telling a story with a camera. We just keep walking and looking.
1: You can see the photos from Michael Mannheim's return to Neptune Road and check out the rest of the Documerica collection at our website, loe.org. Some birders travel great distances to see rare species, filling out impressive life lists. But not commentator Tom Montgomery Fate. Tom and his boy let the birds travel to them as their migrating friends return to the Midwest.
3: My eight-year-old son, Ben, and I like to watch birds at our backyard feeders. We have a pair of binoculars, a field guide, and a journal to keep track of what we see. That's the point for me, not seeking out rare birds or dozens of different species, but just learning to see the ordinary birds that live here in suburban Chicago. Four house sparrows are scratching in the seed when a male cardinal drops in out of nowhere like a shiny fire engine pulling up to a working-class bar. As the chattering sparrows make way for the noble bird, I tell Bennett how the cardinal got its name. Due to its stiff triangular crest and bright red feathers, the male cardinal was named after its Catholic counterpart in the church. We muse about whether the naming has anything to do with its behavior. Does the bird have an elevated sense of morality? When he flies away, I imagine he's off to address a flock of sinful starlings, to hold a chirpy mass in some huge lilac bush with a communion of mulberry juice and crickets. But instead he flies to his mate, who is singing from a nearby elm branch. He feeds her the seed he has brought her. I don't tell Bennett that cardinals are single and celibate, nor how amused I am by the clutch of red finches that have now gathered around the feeder. Whenever the cardinal returns to the feeder, they all quickly drop to the ground to gobble up the tiny grains that he scatters on them in an odd sort of baptism. Look, he's kicking the food to them, Bennett says. Yeah, I say, and they seem thankful. Later, two robins, a nuthatch, and a few sparrows are all having a quiet snack when a raucous gang of grackles arrive. They crash the bird feeders like drunk conventioneers who can't believe they've stumbled onto a free smorgasbord. It takes a minute for Bennett to figure out that the birds are grackles and not starlings. The guide helps. Grackles walk on the ground, but starlings don't. Like robins, they hop. We both like identifying the birds by behavior rather than color, seeing more than the most obvious markers. I count 24, Bennett says. He watches the birds intently. We try to distinguish the males from females and the juvenile birds from the mature birds. It's difficult. But the longer we watch, the more we see. Tom montgomery Fate teaches writing at College of
1: DuPage in Glen Ellyn, Illinois. His Nature Memoir will be published next year by Beacon Press. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Balinski, Bruce Gellerman, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Jessica Elise Smith, Ike Shreesh and Mitra Taj, with help from Sarah Calkins, Marilyn Gavoni, and Sammy Sousa. Our interns are Emily Guerin and Bridget Macdonald. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Learish-Dean composed our themes. Our executive producer is Steve Kerwood. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. I'm Jeff Young.
2: Thanks for listening. dedicated to the idea that all people deserve a chance to live a healthy, productive life. Information at GatesFoundation.org. And PaxWorld Mutual Funds, integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision-making. On the web at PaxWorld.com. PaxWorld, for
11: tomorrow. PRI Public Radio International.